Welcome to Headful, the science podcast for the passionately curious and the curiously passionate. I'm your host for today, Sean Cook, and today we're getting a headful of Todd Meyer, a drug discovery chemist from San Diego, California. We talked to Todd about how the molecules and pharmaceuticals, that is, the medicines that you and I take to cure our ailments, interact with the molecules of our cells. That's what Todd's job is. And today he's going to explain it all to us. Todd and I also talk about the immune system the pharmaceutical research industry, and, of course, we wrap up the conversation talking about robots. So if you like any of those topics, just stick around. I don't think you'll be disappointed. All right, let's do this. Let's get a head full of Todd Meyer. Um, I don't even know your last name. Yeah, let's just start. So who are you and what do you do? Hey, Headful Universe. I'm Todd <laughs> Meyer, and I'm a drug discovery chemist. Nice. Todd Meyer, yeah. yeah. Drug. I, like, I like to keep that open-ended, because then there's room for interpretation. Well, let's dive into that interpretation. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's get in there. So, All right. All right, so you discover drugs. So where do you discover drugs? Where, where are you looking? Well, that's a really open-ended question. I like that. Um, so, you know, what I do, broadly speaking, is try to make molecules that will do something useful. Mm -hmm. um, I, work, I work pretty early in the process where we're looking at enzymes maybe or you know, genes mm -hmm. at that level uh, that are doing something in a cell, most usually a cancer cell, right, mm -hmm. that we don't want them to do. A lot of times they're making a cell grow, they're making it more invasive, um, or if it's not cancer, it's causing some other kind of problem in your body that leads to a disease state. Mm -hmm. And so if we can zero in on enzymes and, and other targets like that and find small molecules that will get in there and gum up the works, inhibit mm -hmm. those enzymes, Okay. then we that's that's kind of our aim at the, at the discovery level. Gotcha. If we can do that, then we say, okay, this enzyme is druggable, this protein is druggable. Now we can build on that concept and get from something that works in just an in vitro lab assay mm -hmm. into animals and ultimately, we hope, humans. Okay, so two questions, very basic questions here. What is an enzyme and how do you, how do you determine what it does? How do you know, or what's your drug? How do you know what your drug is going to, how, how your drug will interact with those enzymes? Can, is, it, sure. is there something predictive about what you're doing? Is it purely just with tests and petri dishes? Or there's, a, there's a couple of ways. So an enzyme short version is it's a, t it's a protein. Mm -hmm. There are lots of proteins in your cell, right? And lots of cells, different cells, different organs. And lots of proteins do different things. Sometimes mm -hmm. they just are scaffolding proteins. They help your, your cells take shape. They mm -hmm. define the walls and membranes of things. Other times they have functions. They'll turn some substrate into a product or they'll interact with DNA to you know, start transcribing a gene. I think I read... I think it was one of the links that you sent me that said uh, if you ever want to do anything in a cell, you'll, it'll require protein. Oh, so yeah. the protein right. is sort of the verb in the cell. It does it does stuff. Is yeah, that, I think that's that, fair. I mean, that sounds kind of silly, but kind of, that, a little but oversimplified. But yeah, but but I think that's accurate, right? I mean, yeah. you can you can build you can build a car 
but mm -hmm. without an engine, it doesn't do anything. It can't go anywhere, uh -huh. right? Yeah. So enzymes, enzymes do the work in the cell to, to make all the, the processes go. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately that leads to cell growth, division, and all the things that, that mm. your organs that are made up of cells will do for your body, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. building mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. So coming back to your question, Enzyme. Yeah. yeah, what do we, how do we know that something's gonna work? So a lot of enzymes you can identify um, and isolate out of cells, mm -hmm. and that's a biology thing that I'm, I, I let them do that. Oh, I'm, other people I'm do comfortable that. to let the biologists do their thing, but I know <laughs> you can isolate a, an enzyme Right, and then you can develop an assay around it to isolate its function mm -hmm. outside of the cell, mm -hmm. and then toss molecules at it mm -hmm. and say, "Okay, are these having any effect on mm -hmm. this isolated function?" And that enzyme. that sounds like an experiment. Like it is doing, okay, very much. And then, an experiment. what's the nature of that? Again, is it just like now you've isolated this enzyme, and now you have a petri dish or a, a vial of this stuff? Now you're going to pour. You're going to mix somehow this all these other molecules with it, and then see what happens, or is it something like that? It's more yeah. educated. I'm assuming. I mean, it's yeah. more an educated guess than just. It's more complex. Yeah. At that point, you, you in order to do that assay, you've got to know what that what that enzyme does and how mm -hmm. it does it. Mm -hmm. So you set up uh, probably instead of a petri dish, we'd think in terms of not these 96 well plates where mm -hmm. you can do or four 480 uh, 384, you know, mm -hmm. or larger 15 uh, what was four times. 1534. Okay, yeah. Whatever. 1536. A panel. Anyway, it's like a big array. A large array. Each well is basically its own little experiment. Gotcha. And you feed each well. You, you put in some enzyme. You mm -hmm. give it the reagents that it needs to do its function. Mm -hmm. um, and you give it the reagents that will allow, allow you to detect whether that function mm -hmm. is being performed or not yeah. and to what degree. Uh -huh. And then into that mix, you throw you know, maybe just solvent, DMSO, as your control. Mm -hmm. And you know that's your baseline, mm -hmm. and then you throw molecules in mm -hmm. to other wells. And mm -hmm. Say, okay, compared to our control, how did this enzyme do? Mm -hmm. And if it did mm -hmm. the same, they say, well, that molecule didn't do anything. And if it did a little worse, wasn't as effective. You say, okay, that's that molecule had moderate potency in inhibiting that enzyme. Right. And then you look at another one and say, oh wow, okay, this basically shot the, hmm. the effectiveness of this enzyme to zero. That's start. That's a pretty good starting point to, to look at to say, how can we build high-potency inhibitors of this enzyme. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, okay, so the next question, how, how do you make the molecules? How do you make a molecule? The, that's, you, well, you build them up by kind of almost atom by atom, but not quite that bad. Mm. And you look at different pieces, um, and this is where the chemistry part comes in. Yeah. Right. You, you look at the molecule you want to make, and you look at the bonds that you know how to form in a flask, Mm -hmm. in the lab, and then you start tearing it apart in your mind. Mm -hmm. It's called retrosynthetic analysis. Referring to retrosynthetic? Retrosynthetic as, as in the backwards version of the synthesis of the model. Oh, starting, Basically. okay, this, this is where I want to, you have a goal, and exactly. then, you, then you start doing like, then like chemical start, calculations to figure out where the bonds and... Yeah, more or less. You look at the bonds that you think you can manipulate. Ah. And then you tear that molecule down based on that. And mm -hmm. then you go into the lab and say, okay, these are the pieces I think fit together into this mm -hmm. puzzle into, you know, based on the rules I know of reactivity and the, the pieces that I've got, let me stick them together in the right order and make the molecule. And it never works the way you think it's going to. Oh. So then you go and, you know, you, you fiddle around with your plan. So, that, so I mean, I guess I imagine... So there, the, so there must be different tools in your toolkit in terms of how to build that. So there's, 
heat and there's mm -hmm. um, agitation by like shaking yeah. things and then there's different types of solutions and is that the right? I mean, oh, yeah. is, is that, yeah, is that how is, you? Yeah, this, and this is one of the things that attracted me to chemistry in the first place as opposed <laughs> to biology where you've got a mm -hmm. lot of variables that are in kind of a black box. Once you start an, an assay, if you do an experiment, for example, in cells, mm -hmm. there are so many pieces inside that cell that are moving around without your control. Mm. You treat that cell with some molecule and you get a result. You don't really know exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. It's much different from the enzyme assay we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. In chemistry, when you're making molecules, you know all the variables, temperature, time. It's perfectly controlled. Concentration. You, yeah. you have control over all those variables. Right. And if something doesn't work the way you want it to, you can change all the variables as much as you want until it works nicely. But this or you is, give up and say, this is never going to work and do something different. But this is science, right? This you, is science. You have, you have the real world, which is messy and chaotic and um, unpredictable. And then you have the, the tightly controlled experiment that, that is precisely what you want and it's, and it's completely um, sanitized of, of any chaos, or as much chaos as possible. Yeah, that's so. a really interesting diagnosis of the bridge from what we talk about, the you know, bench top to bedside. Mm -hmm. How do you get from the lab where we're mm -hmm. making these molecules to actual medicines and actual pills that actual doctors can give to actual patients to cure actual diseases, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's a very messy process, as you described. Which which part is? The, 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 the translation, right? We can make molecules, but then, you know, we can make molecules that will inhibit enzymes. That's relatively predictable. Right, but what happens process. when you put that in the giant Amazon rainforest <laughs> ecosystem well, of the body, right? Right, is that the and, point right yeah, you've got to translate that, you know, in really kind of what feel like baby steps from I've got my enzyme assay, and now I go and try to do this in cells. So if yeah. we're trying to cure, let's say we're trying to cure lung cancer, mm -hmm. right? Okay, I've got an enzyme that I think is important in lung cancer, mm -hmm. and I've got molecules that inhibit it. Super. Mm -hmm. Awesome. But we're not even close to start it. Right. right. Now we've got to look at lung cancer cells and say, what do else I have an experiment that says not only do my compounds inhibit that enzyme in those cells, but do they also die? They did? Mm. Great. Now let me try to put this into an animal because it's right. you know, there's too many other factors. Just killing cells is relatively easy, and you don't want to kill all the cells. You yeah. got to be sure that you're killing just the cancer cells. Right. Right. How do you how do you bridge these these it's, gaps to you know limit the side effects and things to a tolerable because range. the molecule can be reacting with all the other molecules in the cell or other cells. And, right. right, right, and we've got those molecules. Those are old-school chemotherapies, right? Mm -hmm. You take all the, the cells that are right. dividing a lot, you take their chemotherapy, and it, it shuts them all down. Uh -huh. And that's why you lose your hair, and that's why you lose a lot of things that you don't want to lose, Right. but you also lose a good chunk of your cancer cells. Uh -huh. But it's not a great balance. Right, right. Why is that? Now, now that since I have here, what, why is it that the chemotherapies that... Is it that the, the cancer cells are somehow more susceptible to that and are just slightly more likely to, to, to perish than, than your other cells? It's, it's more that what those chemotherapy molecules are, are aimed at are the cells that are dividing. Mm. And all your cells are dividing all the time, right? Oh. But some of them are more stable than others. Mm. Your skin cells divide a lot. Your hair cells divide a lot. They grow. Mm. Um, some of your other organ cells get, you know, as you become an adult, they get more stable. They don't oh. divide nearly as much. Mm. And this, you know, you don't you don't have as many brain cells, or you have right. You don't your brain cells aren't turning over with the same frequency right. as some of your other organs. Right, which is why it's kind of a big deal when you lose a bunch of brain cells. Interesting. So is that is that my mitosis? Is that meiosis? My, yeah, mitosis is that's the, the cell process division. of cell division. Mm -hmm. And so is yeah. that the component of 
of the molecular biology that that chemotherapy is targeting? Is that what traditional chemotherapies go after that more or less? Yeah, that uh, process. Okay. And cancer cells in particular are doing that all the time. Mm. They never really stop. That's one of the features of cancer cells is that yes. they're sort of yes. the, the accelerator is stuck on. Is that exactly? Okay. So if you've got a molecule that goes into all cells and indiscriminately shuts down the ones that are dividing a lot, uh, it's going to take down the cancer cells because there's plenty of those. Right. But it's also going to take the, take down some other things, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. adjacent. Sure. That are also dividing yeah. quick. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So. Okay, so let's go back. I did have a question about timing in terms of you were talking about your, you mentioned the, what did you call it, the test tube to bedside? Is bench to bedside, that's the phrase. What is it? Bench, bench to, to bedside, bedside. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're obviously basically on the bench side of that. And there, there's, that's a, a long process that, that involves lots of different, like you, you're pointing out some of the steps, uh, presumably the FDA and, and, yes. and you know there's like there's like societal uh, regulation that gets involved towards the so. end of and, and right. rightly so yeah oh sure yeah no I'm not arguing <laughs> but, um, but yeah it's a, it's a careful drawn out process basically because we're at the point now where we've got plenty of those old drugs that are that help just about as much as they hurt you know they they have sure. a lot of side effects yeah. Yeah. I don't want to say that they, they hurt as much as they help, but they're yeah. but they're rough, right? Yeah. And so now we're we as a society can make more stringent demands of new drugs and say you have to be a lot better than that yeah. to get to market. Yeah. And you have to prove that you actually you know, because of the the ways that we're better able to diagnose specific patients. Yeah. Not just you have cancer or not just you have lung cancer, but you have non small cell lung cancer with these specific mutations. Right. Do we actually have a drug for that? Does your the drug that you specific, claim goes yeah. after that specific type of cancer? Does that actually hit the mark? Huh. You know, we can actually make those demands of these molecules. And what is it in the enzymes that you're looking for in that situation? Is it you're looking for a very specific marker for you know that specific type of lung cancer that that uh, you know. Hodgkin's type B lymphoma or something. I mean, it's just is that's that the idea. Is that's that, I mean, that's that one way. That's what that's what's called. You know, in the last twenty some odd years, Britain referred to as targeted therapy. So we had the old line chemotherapeutics. Mm-hmm. Now we've got what we call targeted therapies, mm. and there we we look at at enzymes that are either uh, overexpressed, meaning there's more of them in cancer cells than than normal cells, mm-hmm. or they're mutated specifically mm-hmm. in cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you find the types of cancers where those mutations occur, and is it, say, non-small cell lung cancer but not glioblastoma, yeah. right? And then f- focus your uh, your efforts on those cancers where your molecules are going to work. Yeah. There's a downside to that, which is that the, in order to get through the FDA, you have to look at each indication or each type of cancer independently. Ooh, okay. Right? So if you think that you have a drug for certain types of breast cancer and also bladder cancer and also pancreatic cancer, you've got to do clinical trials in all of those. Each one. Mm-hmm. But, th- but that would be like if you had a drug that could do all those, but you think it's mostly going to be for, for breast cancer. I mean, as a business, from a, from a financial perspective, you could just f- do all of your research on that to... Right. Yeah. I mean, most just get people, that through, and then yeah. retroactively go back and. Usually, you'll start with the the indication where you have the easiest path to approval, uh-huh. and sometimes that's the largest market. Other mm-hmm. times, it's the one with the greatest need. Mm-hmm. Um, so recently, I was working on a, a project where we had an enzyme 
that we know is overexpressed in multiple cancers, and mm. two types that we're particularly focused on uh, are anaplastic thyroid cancer, which is a very small market, and mm -hmm. triple negative breast cancer, which is a much larger market. Mm. But because the patients who had anaplastic thyroid cancer have essentially no targeted therapies at all, mm. and they're a much smaller group, we there's a regulatory strategy that says we, you can help those people much more, much more immediately. Oh. So you might focus on those then, so people. The, the, regula the regulators will help expedite that a yes. little bit more than... Yes. There are, oh. there are procedures in place at the FDA. Um, one is called orphan drug designation, which is uh, emphasizing new drugs for small patient populations where there isn't a drug al already. Mm -hmm. um, and breakthrough, breakthrough designations, which is kind of similar, but for, um, for new types of targets. Mm -hmm. And if you can, sometimes you know, that's, it's meant to encourage you to start there, yeah. to focus on those unaddressed, those unmet medical needs. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you say, great, I've got my drug approved. Now I can start with a little less um, uh, barrier to entry. I can start approaching the FDA about going into some of these other indications. Mm -hmm. And maybe those have larger financial markets for me. Yeah. But my drug's already approved. I find it interesting that um, uh, I find the... Oh gosh, the interplay of of economics, and you know this. We're basically discussing how a capitalist society interfaces with with um, altruism. Yes, you know uh, yeah. it, it's, and this is sort of the expression of that. Yeah, and um, there's a there's a real tension there. Yeah, um, and it's it's especially true in um, larger pharma organizations where you have both research and. Uh, marketing mm -hmm. in the same in the same company. Mm -hmm. I've stayed towards uh, smaller companies where we tend to be research focused only, and mm -hmm. then partner, you know, as necessary with with the business side. Um, but yeah, you know, when people complain about pharma, you know, and the business yeah. of pharma, it it kind of that cuts across the the business practices, some of which have been demonstrably unethical, uh, right, in the past and present probably. Sure, uh, but. You know that cuts across to the researchers too, and uh, that that hurts because we, and I don't mean to you know to uh, try to defend ourselves from all criticism, mm -hmm. but you know we we are trying to do science for the public good, and mm -hmm. you know we're also employed by by companies that are trying to make money. It's a, right, and yeah. it's it's not their fault that they need to make money. So well, the making, incentives are there yeah. as the society presents. Them. You're you're also a human being who needs shelter and food, and I mean you you, you need to. I do like food. I know, me too, <laughs> especially burritos. <laughs> I think, um, but it, yeah, I mean you 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 again. This is not um, this is a society that 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 it's a capitalist society, and 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 so profit is is more than just a bad word it can it definitely is you know can be horrific you know in terms of like some of the greed um that that you know is on the front page of the newspaper like almost every week um but um but it's also a necessity i mean i, I i'm not totally opposed to capitalism i just um but i'm also personally just aware of its limitations and th this is just interesting because because I found it interesting how the the regulators are, how the regulations have been modified to almost leverage that, and to it makes it turns that into into an incentive to to try to help guide the again the altruism of 
of that. It, it it seems like very very effective. Um, yeah, the FDI positive. The thing. FDA has a tough job. They're in a tough spot yeah. because they are their um, their mandate does not include anything about the marketing. So mm. they will approve drugs that have no market, and it's the company's job to make money off of that. Sure, and they'll approve drugs that people are going to, um, you know, unethically raise the prices of, mm -hmm. and it's not the FDA's responsibility one way or the other to get involved in that. Um, but they do, they have created incentives to try to get people to develop drugs for, you know, these orphan indications, these rare diseases, mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, then there's a problem of if, if you have a patient population of a few thousand people in the U.S. Yeah. and you spent some several hundreds of millions of dollars or more developing that drug yeah. and you want to make you know make your money back and be a profitable company how do you square that yeah and that's a that's again it's not the FDA's problem but it is society's problem what do you think about that what do you think about like socialized healthcare to address that I think there's potential there. I think that we're starting to see movements in that direction in the antibiotic development space in particular, which is, really? I think, going to be a, a, a model case for um, for drug development overall. You mean the government is starting to invest in, in antibiotic research? Or? What we're seeing is, is steps towards what you could call a public-private partnership mm -hmm. in the development of new antibiotics. So... There's always been, um, or there's been for a long time, a pretty robust uh, government grants investment mm -hmm. portfolio for early stage drug discovery, and they have tended to bias a little bit towards those societal needs like antibiotics, mm -hmm. where we know we have a, a resistance crisis on our hands. Yeah, the superbugs. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right. And there's been a, an increasing challenge. People have gone forward and developed drugs and gotten them approved by the FDA and found that there was no market because doctors said, great, thank you for this new antibiotic that will work in our resistant populations. We're going to put this in our pocket and not give it to anybody right. because we don't want to develop resistance to that yet. Oh. So people are working on, uh, our government and others you know, in the world are working on strategies to um, develop ways to to kind of pre-purchase these things or, or ensure that there's some kind of return on investment for the people who do the hard work of getting new antibiotics through the regulatory process and so they don't go bankrupt, you know, as soon as they get their drugs approved. Do you, could you see, could you see a way to purely socialize the, the research aspect of medicine or is that... I know this. Maybe this isn't your your area of expertise. Uh, it seems it's, like it, though. You're pretty. <laughs> it's, I won't. I will certainly not call myself an expert on this. Yeah. Um, I will say that you know my view, having lived in the academic world and lived in the um, the enterprise world, I think you do need to some degree that profit motive, that that risk of failure to drive yeah. progress. Yeah. When everything is kind of backstopped, then you run the risk of having people pursue their pet projects to no end. Mm. It's it's a double-edged sword because you need to you need, you need to have there's failure in science all the time every yeah. day and you need to leave yourself room to rebound from those failures and, you know, go through the 20-year process of discovering 
immunotherapies, for example, mm-hmm. which was just uh, awarded the Nobel Prize earlier this oh, year. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, harnessing the body's immune system to uh, attack cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that was talked about for many, many years as a concept, and a lot of people said it's just you can't do it. It can't. It won't work. It's not working. It's never going to work. Mm-hmm. You better stop. Except a bunch of people who kept at it. For 20 years? For a, a lot longer than that. Decades. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, they found success in the last couple of decades. Um, but the background, you know, happened you know, with a lot of people, a lot of naysayers. Yeah. You know, trying to slow it down. So, so you, it's a, again, there's always a push-pull attention. Um, if everything is always funded, then you, there's no, there's there's too much room to fail. Mm-hmm. Right? There's too much room to just spin your wheels and not make progress. Yeah. There's got to be some kind of a competitive um, mm-hmm. review process. Yeah. So, Existential so threat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah. you know, you could socialize it all and have stringent reviews of portfolios, make sure that everybody's working on things from, um, that have some potential. Mm-hmm. But who's in charge of that? Yeah, you know that's if you if you have the system we have now, which is much more distributed, mm-hmm. you have the downsides of capitalism, but you have some of the upsides of decentralized control and yeah. people who want to take risks on crazy things mm-hmm. that end up panning out. Those people, you know, you need that. that. You need off. that spread. You need all of it. You need exactly. all levels. Yeah, that's yeah, that's awesome. You mentioned immunotherapy. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What, how does sure. that? Yeah, in, in immuno-oncology in particular, um, this is the concept of training your body's immune system to recognize the cancer cells as foreign and eat them, mm-hmm. destroy them. The cancer cells have this, uh, this propensity to express what's commonly in the field referred to as the don't eat me signal. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You know that when, you're, when, you're, when you have a cold, mm-hmm. right, you have foreign microbes in your bloodstream your immune system kicks up, your white blood cells come after it, they tear it apart, you get sick for a little while, mm-hmm. but then you're free, mm-hmm. right? That clears out. Um, unless you have a, a, if you have a healthy immune system, right, over a few yeah. days, you'll help, you'll clear it out and you'll be, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen with cancer in part because you, the cancer cells are really your own cells. They're not foreign. Mm-hmm. They're just a, a, a mutated version of the cells you already had in the mm-hmm. first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also express these signals that normal cells uh, express, but, eat, but to a, a higher degree, these don't eat me signals. Mm-hmm. And so the immuno-oncology uh, technology is built on retraining your immune system to recognize those cells and eat them. Mm-hmm. So, okay, devour the cancer. And does it ignore the don't eat me signal, or does it just target the something on the on the membrane of the cell wall of the cancer cell or what happens is that um, the the most famous one is called pembrolizumab the, or keytruda is the the, tr- the trade name mm-hmm. um, and it, it binds to the surface of the cells the cancer cells and waves this flag to the, it's to the immune system saying come back come it's eat this ta- it's tagging the cell exactly it puts a tag on the cell mm-hmm. to say eat this. So yeah. it, it blocks the don't eat me signal and restores the eat me signal. And which, uh, is that a is that a specific, is that a tar- target to a specific type of cancer or is that No, it's, a, it's, well, it's target, it's been working in a lot of different cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's targeted to the programmed death receptor 
PD-1. So not all cancer cells are... Okay. Death receptor, I like it. Yeah, proteins are named awesome. in weird ways. I wish there was a more regular system for naming these things, but what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, well, there's like in, astro in astronomy, um, the technical term for um, uh, the forces uh, on... on um, on an object or on matter as it crosses the event horizon is called spaghettification. Like you're spaghettified, you're stretched, and you're extruded into... <laughs> so, hey, that's all. That works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've seen a few movies about that, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, these, um, uh, these, these receptors on the cell, uh, so the, the antibody can bind to them mm -hmm. and restore that EME signal. Mm. Um, and so not all cancer cell, not all cancer types express those receptors at the same level. Mm -hmm. And so this works in a lot of cancers and not all of them. And so that's, that's the next generation of finding targets for cancers. Like we talked about, you know, the, the way things go commonly now is you look at one cancer type at a time and keep rolling through those approvals, and that's what Cutruda has done to great effect. Yeah. Uh, but there's another round of, of progress in that development cycle that's coming, which I think is very promising, something people have been wanting for a long time, mm. which is a genetics-based um, approach to targeting. Mm. So there are certain specific genes, lots of them, we haven't found them all yet, mm -hmm. but certain genes that are mutated uh, across all cancers, Wow. but not in every cancer of that same type. So, for example, uh, there are genes, the, the one that was recently uh, approved is referred to as NTRK. Mm -hmm. And the NTRK fusion appears in something like 4% of all cancers. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't appear in 4% of all breast cancers and 4% of all lung cancers and all that, et cetera. It's in you know 20% of certain cancers oh, okay. and 0% yeah. of other cancers. But of all cancers, but it's average is out to average, average is out about 4%. And so now, if you um, you go in and you're diagnosed with cancer and you can go through the diagnostic protocol and they find the NTRK fusion in your cancer, mm -hmm. you're a candidate for taking this drug, Lyrotrectinib. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. And that's already out on the market now? That is. One of them is out. On, there's another mm -hmm. one uh, close to approval, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so, but that's that's the next generation. So you know, the NTRK is the first one that people have looked at. Mm -hmm. There are other genes similar to that that are uh, where drugs are going to be developed based on that fusion mm -hmm. or that gene mutation. Mm -hmm. And so all the, you know, then you get a broad spectrum approval. Mm -hmm. You can do a relatively num a limited number of clinical trials if it's well designed. Yeah. Then you don't have to. You know, that should also bring down the overall cost of development. Yeah. Um, because you've got the ability to diagnose the, exactly the patients you think this will work for and rule out the ones that, that work. Right, yeah, right. you can select your, your panel precisely. So, um, genes, okay. we're going to back way up to <laughs> junior sure. high biology class. Oh, you so, want the central dogma, don't genes, you? Yeah, what's that? You want the central dogma? Oh, yeah, now do I do. DNA to RNA to protein? Oh, wait, what's that? Oh, that's the central dogma of molecular biology. So at the core of your cell, you've got DNA, right, where uh -huh. all your genes are housed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that's transcribed to RNA, which is commonly thought of just an intermediary. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more than that, it turns out, but let's stick with the old school. Uh, <laughs> the dogma. Uh, then RNA is this, this messenger that gets translated 
by other machinery in the cell to produce the proteins that we talked about earlier. And the proteins are found on the surface of the cell? Inside, on, yeah, on right. the surface, they go all over the place. Okay, so this, you're right, this is where I was, where I was going. So I'm okay. curious, how do you, so the DNA is, your genes are on the, are expressed in the DNA, the DNA mm -hmm. produces RNA, some translated into RNA somehow, and then that produces and translates into proteins. Right. But when uh, the therapy you were just discussing, um, like that tagging therapy, right, that, that uh, targets. The, the immuno-oncology. Yeah, excuse me, yeah, mm -hmm. the yep. immuno-oncology. So that's, that's tagging a specific cell, and, it, 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 and it, what is the mechanism? How does it know from outside the cell that what the contents of the cell are? You know, I mean, maybe I'm thinking right. about this too literally. Like, like the cell is a basketball that has, like, marbles rolling, the DNA is, like, bouncing around inside, and somehow you're, you know... Um, just by touching the outside, what what the you know the color of the marble is on the inside of the right. ball, you know. Right. So, yeah, we're talking. I think you're talking about you're you're thinking about the cell in, in the right way that there's an outside where and things stick off of it. Yes. And there's an inside and things are functioning inside of it. Yeah. Um, most things that most molecules, therapeutic um, antibodies, etc., mm -hmm. that will interact with the cell will kind of do one or the other. They'll either go to the outside of the cell and recognize something that's there, mm -hmm. or they'll penetrate the cell membrane, they'll go inside, mm -hmm. and they'll interact with something that's happening there. Mm -hmm. So the small molecules and the enzymes that we were talking about earlier, usually, a lot of time, more often than not, I'd say, small molecules will go inside the cell, they'll find the enzyme that, they, that they're interested in, and they'll, they'll interact with it there. Uh -huh. um, and molecules that don't get into cells usually are not desirable because, uh, you know, even if they have potency on the enzyme in your in vitro assay, mm -hmm. if they can't penetrate that membrane, they're not going to do much good. Yeah. And this is one of those, you know, baby steps that you've got to overcome in that small molecule world. Yeah. Uh, the antibodies, the, you know, uh, pembrolizumab, the immuno-oncology drug mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier, that's recognizing something on the cell surface. So mm -hmm. you, because it's a much bigger molecule, it's not going to get into the cells. Mm -hmm. Antibodies are huge compared to small molecules. Mm. But it doesn't need to get into the cell because it hits something that's on the outside of the cell, latches onto it, and then recruits the immune system to come destroy it. How does it know to latch onto the that cell? I guess that's my point. Like, yeah. it, it, How does it recognize what's in the cell and knows to latch onto the outside of the cell? Well, it doesn't. It only knows oh. what's on the outside of the cell. Oh, and there's something that's expressed on the... There's the proteins right. that, are, that become expressed on the outside of exactly. the cell. Exactly. So, right. So, so some of the... As proteins get expressed in the cell... Uh, some of them find their way to the membrane, and some of them get dragged through the membrane mm. to be expressed outside. Man, so I'm yeah, just cells are crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, I'm I'm uh, very new. Obviously, I'm totally untrained. I have no no training in in biology, but um, I, I'm envisioning the the, um, the the kind of lattice structure. Of, of molecules that form the, the cellular membrane, the outside, is that, is that a decent uh, image or that's is there something? That's probably too rigid. Mm -hmm. um, the cell membrane is, is a little more permeable than that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to, 
I don't want to try to train you in cell biology because I'm also not a cell biologist either. Oh. So I don't want to overstep my bounds on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like that you're already thinking about the cell in three dimensions because a lot yeah. of times we see pictures, right? We yeah, see pictures flat. on 2D. Yeah, yeah. But the cell is not squished. Flat, yeah. right? That's just how the image has to right. be presented to our eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but cells are very much like basketballs. And yes. you know, you've got that grip on the outside of a basketball, right? Think mm-hmm. about that. There's a lot of proteins there, mm-hmm. um, and they're, they're forming a membrane, and things are being protruded through the membrane. Um, oh, so it's got to be, yeah, it's got to be permeable. And the cell takes things in, too. The cell mm-hmm. takes in nutrients and other things from outside mm-hmm. um, in order to, you know, to get some of the fuel that it needs to make molecules. How does, is it, how closed off is it? Is it like, I mean, now I'm, I'm confused because I know, I think it's osmosis is the process, right? For, even though I don't actually remember what osmosis is, but. <laughs> o- osmosis is a kind of a specific type of membrane permeability. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a passive uh, permeability of, um, of salts mm-hmm. into... Oh, yeah. You know, from, from Pulling the water through based on, a, on uh, right. saline levels. Okay. Right. And so um, you just we, you say stop talking about <laughs> cellular <laughs> structure and we'll move on, but I, am, but, I mean, I'm imagining like um, those buckyballs, right? Like uh-huh. it's like a three-dimensional grid of... of of, it's one molecule, but it's just it's three dimensional, right? And it has like I can't remember if they're octagons or hectic, but it's like a you know a hexagons, 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 it's like a soccer ball. Yep. yeah, yeah, hexagons all around. And the hexagon itself is just defined by the the bonds of the molecules that surround mm-hmm. essentially an empty space. So right. when you say things are passing into the into the the cell membrane, I'm imagining that these small molecules must be small enough to fit through that hexagonal shape. Is that well, the no. cell is, is a whole lot bigger than a bucky. Of course, so that's yeah. the big difference. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, a cell is when compared to a small molecule, it, it's just enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's really the membrane itself is made of proteins. Mm-hmm. It's not made of just single atoms bonded together. But those proteins themselves atoms. are just more are just more shapes. I mean, it's, the, yes. the, the the hexagon is just a. Uh, a metaphor, sure. but it's okay. still the yeah the the protein and the shape of the right yes yeah, right exactly they they create a, a matrix as you described that kind of excludes things and keeps stuff in but it's also fairly permeable and there's a lot of things that push through it um, to allow passage of of various parts of hmm. um, the uh, various atoms and ions and things huh. there's also a whole um, a whole process by which cells kind of open up the membrane, capture something that's outside of it, and pull it in. And it's and there's some triggering mechanism that yeah, it, it, it senses it, there's something there that it needs and it grabs it. Right, or thinks mm-hmm. it needs. And sometimes you can trick a, a cell into taking something like a drug that it doesn't really need. Wow. Jeez, that's so amazing. Um, yeah, that's so cool. Um, all right, so one more question. Um, you know, we've been talking for almost 40 minutes already. Is that right? It feels it's like it's been five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, this is a question that, I, that I've, I've had in mind for a long time, and I just realized I have an expert here who could probably shed some light on it. Uh-oh. So, <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, um, it's, it comes from a place of naivety, so <laughs> feel free to tell me I'm totally wrong. I have but, no problem telling anybody they're totally wrong. All right, awesome. <laughs> all right, so um, the point is that... Um, uh, uh, let's say cancer and and 
um, maybe even um, microbial life mm-hmm. um, is um, it evolves uh, based on maybe cancer doesn't evolve, but but um, you know our environment evolves based off of um, the law of natural selection. Um, you know, there's 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 basically choices and design work that's that's occurring that makes let's just take microbes for example that that evolve and they change over time. Mm-hmm. But there's no um, there, so if you can imagine that 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 rate of selection there's really no um, there's it's very specific velocity right I mean and you can change the environment faster and that'll just change the rate of 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 evolution of the cells, uh, of these uh, microbes. Whereas human beings, um, by contrast, um, we are, um, by definition, because of technology and technological progress, our rate of change is actually accelerating, right? So so think of how long it takes to to make a new, to design a new um, computer chip Mm -hmm. um, today compared to the 1950s. It's thousands of times faster than before. And that, that rate of change, let's just assume that that rate of change continues. Um, so the question is, is would you see a point at which um, humanity, if the rate at which humanity uh, performs all of this discovery that you're talking about, that that, that rate of change is exceeding it, really anything that can occur in, in, in the natural world? And, and it would be, at that point, it would be... Um, we could almost go into a predictive phase where, yep, you, you have this cancer, this special, this new type of cancer, and it takes one week to come up with the resolution. And in the right mm-hmm. while you're while you're producing while you're producing this quote research, you can have a second wave coming right behind it that's already predicting what what will be the potential responses right. in the future. So, so in, a, in a really particular example, this would be how you would cure something like the flu or the common cold, where the main issues are, you know, by the time you've developed something that will actually address the current strain, where it's a new season and the, there's a whole new variant that's out there. Yeah, and we could just be like, right? yeah. Um, so I will, I, I would say there's a there's a juxtaposition that you, you have to deal with. One is, so you're right that on a human level, when we design these molecules and go after these genes and pathways, we're doing that in a very intentional way. Mm-hmm. Right? We're, we're using the scientific method. We're, we're designing, devising hypotheses, and we're testing them, and we're, we could accelerate that as much as we want, mm-hmm. potentially, right? Assuming exponential technological growth yeah. um, and incorporating that you know, on an AI level into the design of molecules and design of experiments, yeah, I think in principle what you're getting at is plausible. Mm-hmm. The problem is going to be that as much as we design things, the the natural world is not designing anything. Mm-hmm. Things are happening at random. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have to layer on a predictive element into the yeah. experimental component sure. that anticipates somehow that randomness. So what happens to cancer cells and microbes is that they there's a certain error rate mm-hmm. as genes are, are transcribed mm. and you get mistakes. And as, as DNA is replicated, there's an error rate mm-hmm. and you get mistakes and that's a, that's a mutation. Mm-hmm. And most of those mutations are probably not viable. Mm-hmm. So you get a certain mm-hmm. mutation in a key protein for cell growth and the, the cell divides and the daughter cell tries to use that gene and it doesn't work, it just dies. Mm-hmm. It can't grow, can't divide, it dies. Mm-hmm. But 
the occasional mutations that accelerate growth, where that protein is viable and not only is it viable, it's more active mm -hmm. and makes cell, that cell grow more, that's your natural selection, right? And that cell now takes off and takes over. Right. And that's what happens a lot of the time right. in, in these mutations that we go after in cancer. Um, so, so the cancer profiles, the cancer profiles are essentially um, similar um, viable mutations that are that are little or more likely to happen. Or, or uh, no, I, I, uh. well, it's it's what happens is the the rate of mutation is as you say is pretty much constant, mm -hmm. more or less. Um, but the number of cancer cell divisions outpaces the number right. of muscle cell gotcha. divisions or heart cell divisions, right? Yeah, and so. You, get, you just get more opportunities for those cancer cells to achieve a favorable mutation status. Yeah. Uh, but because it's random, your ability to design predictively ahead of that mm -hmm. is going to be limited unless you're also able to model that randomness effectively. Well, I would suggest that since our DNA is not growing, that the number of those, of those possible mutations, although astronomically huge, is actually finite. Oh, so yeah. that so that we could with big enough powerful enough computers, um, quantum computers comes to mind that can mm -hmm. perform, you know, just mind-bogglingly complex and very large-scale computations very 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 quickly, and resolve to 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 um, um, to solutions. Yeah, what I would like to see, to, to in a in a real-world experiment mm -hmm. is could we get that predictive model trained up well enough that we could, you know, get a, da a big data set of predicted mutations mm -hmm. in, let's say, a very, in, let's say, let's say lung cancers, mm -hmm. right? And then let's go into some, a, ver a bunch of patient-derived lung cancer cells and see if any of those predicted mutations show up mm -hmm. and see if that model is, has any validity. And then we can start looking at it and say, okay, you know, for example, did we find something that was predicted by... The, mm. the mutation model mm -hmm. that is actually present mm -hmm. in a real world, a real patient sample. Yeah, and we do anything about it. Yeah, right. That's. I think that's the first step towards that. Towards is, that goal. Is that not being done right now, or that that is? I think that's a big data. I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody's working on it. Uh, but the the mutation generator, you know, the AI to mm -hmm. to build that set of possible. I mean, you could do it combinatorially. Yeah, you just you could just make all of the possible mutations in a given gene yeah. um, and create that data set. But if you guessed wrong on the gene, yeah. you wouldn't find anything. Right. So you've got to do across the whole genome, and that takes a, a substantial amount of calculation. That's and big, then a lot, yeah. Right, and then something that, to go into that giant data set and pick out something. But that's, that's my point. I'm a software guy, so that's why mm -hmm. whenever I hear somebody say, like, that's just a big data set, in my mind, I just translate that to time. Right. So no, I agree. That's with you. basically I, just I, it might be five years, it might be fifty years, but it's just a matter of time before we get to that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that completely. I think yeah. that's a, a, a very plausible scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Todd. I'm, I'm having a great time so far. We're not quite done. The last segment we like to call uh, science gossip. Right. Did, did you prep? Did you? Did I, you? Well, actually, you I, you led me into it. You, oh, okay. You, you brought up you brought up the computational component, and, I, and you know I, I've got all sorts of ideas about. It. Uh, about AI and, and where it's going to help us and, and where it's overhyped. Okay. So, do, do you want to, yeah, why don't we just continue? Yeah, what, where do you want to go with this? Yeah, sure. yeah. Well, you know, I, I, as, a, as a chemist, and I, I know I've talked a lot about biology and the big picture of things, but as a chemist, I also, you know, I, I come back to designing the molecules and, and 
what compounds are gonna are gonna make sense. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the kinds of molecules that can work? You know, I can draw up a lot of molecules that will not be orally bioavailable, meaning that you can't ever take it as a pill. Mm -hmm. Or things that will be totally insoluble. So mm -hmm. They'll never go anywhere yeah. in, in drug development, right? So um, I'm, we're also kind of confronted with the opportunity and the challenge of using AI in designing molecules and designing chemistry mm -hmm. um, to go after the, the genes mm -hmm. and the targets that we want. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in people who want to who use that, but also how well they are able to think about that in terms of experimental design. Mm -hmm. you know, it, we, we'd like to, there's a, there's a rich history in computational chemistry of designing molecules that should bind very exquisitely and very very tightly to an enzyme active site mm -hmm. and should be super potent molecules and you you know you go and make them in the lab and of course they're either they're challenging nonsense to make <laughs> you know um, or they are they just don't pan out as, as mm. active as you thought mm. um, and so we you know we people are training those models and rebuilding them it's, it's getting better and better mm. and now we're going to start feeding that to an AI and a machine learning mm -hmm. uh, algorithms that are going to you know tell us what to make mm -hmm. and I'm always interested in those 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 data sets because. I want to see the molecules that will allow us to build an inf information-rich data set, which mm -hmm. means you want to have compounds that are not active to mm -hmm. prove. If so in other words, you can't just take the 12, quote-unquote, best compounds, the ones that should be most active, yeah. and show that they were all active. Because mm. yeah, if some of them weren't active, what did you learn from that? Yeah. What you learned is your model wasn't that great, but you don't know why. Yeah. You can also go down the list and pick out some of the compounds that should be moderately potent or not at all active, right, and pump those into your, your initial set of, of molecules that you make, and you make a dozen compounds that should cover a range of potencies, mm -hmm. that to me is a well-designed experiment, and if you get, if they all fall into the, the bins that they were supposed to, mm -hmm. then that's great, it tells you your model seems pretty solid, and you might want to, you might want to push it, push back on it here and there, yeah. but seems like so far so good. Yeah. So, so you know, it, w when the machines come for us, and they will. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we all know they will. But they're gonna, you know, part of what's gonna happen is they're gonna tell me what molecules to make, and I want, I just want to know that the machines have a good idea of what makes a good experiment before I go and and yeah. make those compounds. Well, there's another, there's a, um, um, a, a, a another application of AI that I heard recently that sounds very similar to this, which is in uh, mechanical design. So um, the classic example is of a um, the frame for uh, like a dune buggy. Mm -hmm. um, right. Have you heard of this? Have you heard of this stuff? Or I don't think I need so. to review it. Okay, it, it's, it probably sound very familiar. But maybe for the sake of the uh, the audience, I'll <laughs> I'll walk through it again. But so the idea is that let's say you have you're trying to make a new dune buggy, and um, you want it to be lightweight, uh, very strong. Right? right and aerodynamic, let's say. Okay, right? so there's these three criteria. Now we as humans have this kind of automatic notion of what a dune buggy should look like because we've seen them all over the place. We know cars, all that stuff. But that is that's good and bad because it gives us a very simple and direct starting point to to start drawing pictures of of a dune buggy. We also have an innate sense of 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 especially for a mechanical engineer of of what makes a strong frame and how to do this and that. But all of that is very limiting because it, it tends to um, eliminate creativity, 
right? Not you know because we might be missing something that that we never would have thought of. Right. You so got your your preconceived notions and biases. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So this this new <coughs> form of AI, I, I I don't know if it's online yet or not, but um, uh, what it is is you take. Um, you can give it these three criteria. You also give uh, it's a, it's a modeling program, like a three dimensional modeling program, and you can, if you wanted to, you could design your own dune buggy frame. Um, but the frame would have to have certain attachment points, like to wheels and maybe a mount, you know, like a, a motor mount, stuff like that. And then you, you have you have these ideas of stresses, of like how much stress gets put on that, and the software that you're going to be using for the modeling. You can, you can run it through a physics modeling scenario where it will activate a motor, it'll try to twist and turn and try to break and see where the, it can tell you like the tensile strength of these materials and all this stuff. So you put all this into, into this modeling program along with all these criteria that we just talked about. And then you have a farm that runs these models. Maybe you run, let's do, you know, 100,000 of these models simultaneously. So within the, the, the confines of the like I said, the attachment points of oops, attachment points of the wheels and the motor and maybe seats or something like that, right? These are fixed points in space. Otherwise, the software okay. is free to use a variety of materials and to be drawing vertices anywhere it wants. And of course, of the hundred thousand, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the the ideas that it comes up with are junk. Well, let's say ninety percent. But otherwise, you have some sort of um, uh, you know, evolutionary algorithm or, or something to that effect that allows every every succession um, successional g generation of these designs. It picks the ones that were that matched your criteria the the best, strongest, lightest, um, most aerodynamic. And the result is after you know twelve hours and you know a thousand generations, you get these crazy looking kind of they look like spaceships. They're very organic looking. Um, and things that you couldn't, you can't, um, you know, you can't just weld together in a garage with, with some conduits and, and, a, and an arc welder. It has to be 3D printed because everything is, you know, it's, it's all, you know, um, designed really beautifully. So that's where I think, that's where I imagine it sounds similar as, as, a, as a, an analogy to what you're describing where you can give it these, this criteria and then you just give it this, these, this vast resource of, of, of um, computational power. You right. say, do this the best you can, and it, it kind of cycles through it. So yeah, that's something yeah. Else. and that's where you know it, the design is very powerful. But I think you also kind of touch on a, one of the practical aspects of it, where you know you come out in the dune buggy example with a design that you just, as you said, you can't go into the garage and make. Mm -hmm. So does that maybe that's a design constraint you also want to add? I need a practical way of doing this. So for for making molecules. Right, the AI has to understand some on some level uh -huh. whether this is a, a molecule that can not only can it exist by the fundamental laws of chemistry. Certain bonds just won't happen. Well, we yeah. can get there. That's straightforward. Yeah. But can we also teach it that it's got to know? It's got to give us some kind of concept of how to make this. Because I could draw lots of molecules too <laughs> that I don't know how to make. Right. Right. And I've now I box myself into a corner of how, you know I, I show that to somebody and say this is going to be the, the <laughs> best molecule you know of, of right, the year. Right. Yeah. They say great, go make it. That's part of my job. I think I'm going to have a plan too. I've got to be able to del to deliver. Well, I think I think the dune buggy example. I think another aspect of it was that you don't just run it through the computer and then you just build and send whatever that tells you. That's that's it. That's the decision for the whole company. That's the next five years of GM. You know, right. no, it actually spits out 
it'll spit out a hundred. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that they just run these things just constantly, you know, and and every day they get a batch of them. And then there's a human being that's actually doing the, especially aesthetic analysis, um, you know, like having a designer looking at it. So it becomes more of a um, of an informative source of creativity that you still have to have a yeah. human in the loop. But I right. think you're when you talk about the molecular design, you're also saying. There's some molecules that are just impossible, and you probably could have the computer do at least a sing, uh, at least a quick pass. <laughs> on, yeah, like, we this we can easily enough complex. train it that this this can't exist by the yeah. the, the laws of, of physics and chemistry. Yeah, but it's a little harder to explain to it that this is a a much more difficult molecule to make, and is there a a simpler molecule that would test the same hypothesis? Yeah, that's a much more nuanced kind of conception. And yeah, so the design component. Um, it's as a design inspiration or as inspiration for, to experimentation. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's where we are now. But I think the the hype around it still is high enough that uh, we're a lot of people are trying to convince the world that uh, you know you give you give their AI, yeah. uh, which in a lot of cases is only sort of AI. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know you give it you give their algorithms a whirl and you, you know you'll get. In a few days, you'll get the molecule. Right, will be your your clinical candidate, and that's yeah. just not right. That's right. Not realistic yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's where I want to you know I want to kind of tamp down some of those expectations that we're we're not going we are going to accelerate the the drug discovery cycle mm-hmm. with AI. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt. Um, you know, starting starting a few years ago and, and moving on into the next five ten years is mm-hmm. absolutely going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people I know. Who work on AI in drug discovery and in you know in other areas of tech mm-hmm. are telling me that we're still a good uh, several years away from from having it make intelligent decisions that we can really rely on. Right. So, yeah. Interesting. Inspiration to experimentation is what I what we can expect for the, yeah. for the near term. Yeah. Todd. I really appreciate you being here. This is this has been really awesome. Um, you're also we'd love to have you back sometime. Maybe we can we can. I know you and I were talking talking about a couple different topics. What was the other topic? So this was a small small molecule drug discovery. Yeah. What was the other one that you? One of the, I'm I'm interested. In, you know, kind of we yeah we covered a range of topics here, and I like the the breadth that we that we went on. So we can. Oh, we good. Can, yeah, I was worried that you you'd be annoyed by the no, <laughs> that we weren't no. like staying focused on. No, I, I like to be able to come into these these situations and kind of give a. Uh, an overview of, of what the process is all about because I think there's a lot of uh, in society there's a lot of, of mismatched expectations yeah. let's say between what, what researchers are doing and what's happening between doctors and patients yeah and, uh, trying to bridge that um, yeah we we talked about I'm interested in you know how some of these other types of structures can get involved and, and be matched and paired and blended together into therapeutics so we talked about small molecules we talked about Immunotherapy, you can pull these things together and use them uh, as separate pieces at the same time. You mm. can stitch them together into one giant weird molecule, mm. and those—that's also where you know where we're headed in the future. We refer to those as can we, new would modalities. You, would you come back sometime? We can talk I would about. Love them. to come. Let's back. do that. I, I, yeah. I had a great time. <laughs> All right, thanks, Todd, and Sarah's here too. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, thanks, Todd. See you next time. Man, that was a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did recording it. 
Many thanks to Todd Meyer for taking the time away from his incredibly busy schedule to come chat with me. Can't wait to talk to him again soon. Thanks, Todd. What would you like to hear from Todd when he comes back to Headful? Find us on Facebook at Headful Science, that's just one L in Headful, and tell us what questions you have for Todd. You can also just send us a good old 20th century email at contact at headfulscience.com. Now it's your turn. Go get a Headful. Headful.